The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, this was so much fun. I cannot begin to tell you what a delightful time I had. Uh, Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz, an absolute tour de force conversation about everything from valuation to uh, psychological impact of market crashes to are we or are we not in a bubble? The significance of of uh, founders and and how are you better off with somebody who has people skills um, but isn't a technologist or a technologist who doesn't necessarily have the social skills? On and on, we covered so much ground so quickly. Absolutely fascinating. It was an incredible, incredible conversation. It, it, it's one of those things where you just say, how privileged am I to sit in a conference room, indeed the conference room where Andreessen Horowitz gets pitched from various startups and have a 90-minute chat with someone uh, with his just amazing understanding of where tech came from, where it is today, and where it's going. Uh, I could babble about this endlessly, but rather than gush, why don't we just listen to the conversation? With no further ado... My podcast conversation with Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Mark Andreessen. He is the co-founder and general partner of venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. He comes with a storied background. He co-created the Mosaic Internet Browser co-founded Netscape, sold to AOL for a few billion dollars, co-founded LoudCloud, also sold to HP for a few billion dollars. Uh, Crunchbase notes that Andreessen Horowitz has over 500 investments in 321 companies, uh, a number of exits via IPOs and acquisitions. I could go on and on about his curricular vitae, but really he speaks for himself so let's jump right into this. Mark Andreessen, welcome to Bloomberg Radio, and thank you for hosting us here in Andreessen Horowitz. I'm thrilled to be on, and, and it's great to have you here. The I love your facilities. We, we love all the artwork and everything here. It seems to be like a very civilized place to, to work. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, so being a venture capitalist is like being an airline pilot. Mm -hmm. Long stretches of boredom followed by moments of sheer terror. Okay. So <laughs> we try to have a, a calm atmosphere. That, that makes a lot of sense. Let, let's go back to the beginning. Your, your big idea in 1992 was that people would want internet access in their homes. Now, that's a given today. We want internet access wherever we are 24-7. But 25 plus years ago, that wasn't very obvious. What led you to say in 1992, I have an idea, an internet browser? Yeah, so I would say it was even beyond not obvious. It was considered ridiculous. Uh, so the idea that basically it was well known in 1992 that the internet was for academics and nerds, um, mm -hmm. and that there was there was no use case for ordinary people. Like it was just incomprehensible. Like why would anybody? How would anybody even have the technical capability to even consider right. getting online? Much less have anything that they could do productively um, mm -hmm. once they're online. 
Um, I've since actually, in the years year since, I've actually learned a principle that I have generalized out that it explains what happened, which is William Gibson, the science, famous science fiction author, wrote Neuromancer. Mm-hmm. It was a very influential book in our industry. He, he says uh, his, his line is, the, 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 the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And, I, and I, there I, are many applications to that line, Yeah, that's too, exactly right. right. It's, it's, so, it's such a fabulous insight. Yeah. And so the new ideas, this is something I've really come to believe, is the new ideas already exist. Uh, there are a few ideas that actually materialize out of, out of thin air. They, they generally already exist somewhere, and they exist somewhere in a lab, right? They exist somewhere in a fringe group or in an underground movement or something like that. And, and so what, what happened here was, and this, this is the part that's just, I think, probably pure luck, um, is I went to college at University of Illinois, um, which at that time was one of four universities in the country that had been funded by the government to be the hubs for what at the time was called the NSFNet, mm-hmm. which, which was what became the internet. And so and there's, there's a whole program developed in the 80s around supercomputers. And this is what, El, you know, El, when, El Gore, when El Gore claimed credit for creating the internet, this is what he was talking about was the funding uh, for, for this program to, to wire these universities. And so we had on campus in 1993 uh, the level of broadband that people have in their homes today. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had the use you saw the use cases you saw everybody using all this stuff now it wasn't at the level of sophistication as today but you could you could see that you could see all the use cases you can see how much people liked it but the expectation was you had it in college and then you would graduate and you would go off into life and you would just give it up right and, and, that, and that was the part where i was like uh-uh nsfnet was after darpanet but before full-on internet for the public is, yeah. is that a fair explanation yeah that's right so arpa darpa arpa was known as arpa now known as darpa funded a military network uh, which was originally the, conceived as a way to do nuclear command and control in the event of, of, of you know bad things happening in the world, therefore the importance of packet switching. Um, Had to be able to respond even after you've been attacked by yeah, nuclear weapons. Yeah, you've got a network with you know a hundred nodes, and then twenty of them get wiped out by attack. You still have to have the network has to still keep running. And traditional mm-hmm. networks don't keep running, and at least in theory, packet switch networks can keep running. So, mm-hmm. so that was the that. Then this is like fifty years ago. They they all figured this stuff out, and then in the eighties, that idea got generalized out to the idea that civilian researchers should be able to use this technology. Um, in particular, actually, the government was funding these national supercomputer centers. They were buying these super expensive supercomputers to put on uh, four or five college campuses. And then they wanted to provide access to scientists from all over the country to be able to access those. And so they trans- basically took the template of ARPANET, turned it into NSFNet. And allowed anybody to lo- with permission to log into those computers, yeah. have temporary time. You would have a few minutes or hours, whatever it was. And yeah. and that's eventually where led to uh, the full-on internet. Yeah, that's Le- right. Let, let's talk about the other name in Andreessen Horowitz, Ben Horowitz. You guys have been working together for a long time. How have you made that partnership work, and, and how did it really begin? Because if if what I've read is to be believed, some of it started out a little little rocky. <laughs> ben, ben, ben took great delight in his book uh, in, uh, in describing the, the origins of the relationship. So... Um, uh, so at this point, we're an old married couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, I guess the good news is we can finish each other's sentences. I guess mm-hmm. the bad news is we usually try to finish each other each other's sentences. Okay. So, <laughs> so, um, so we, you know, we, we've had a long-running partnership and friendship for, you know, for a very long time now, 22 years, I guess. Um, the, uh, the origin of it actually is so he was, he was an early, he was one of the early guys actually to jump into Netscape early on when it was, when Netscape was still a radical idea. Uh, mm-hmm. He actually came over from Lotus, which at the time was this big, important, you know, dominant software company. Eventually bought by IBM. Eventually bought by IBM. Actually, fun story. IBM. IBM. After he left, IBM bought Lotus for I think three and a half billion dollars at the time, which was a blockbuster deal. In retrospect, had IBM spent three and a half billion dollars, they could have bought the entire internet. Uh, That's amazing. Instead of Lotus, they could have bought every internet company and every ISP, and they could have owned the whole thing. So, anyway, he saw the future. Not the first time IBM missed a boat. Uh, yes. What is it? And yeah, probably won't be the last. Big companies. Yeah, we all we all at some point tend to tend to do that. But. Um, 
he saw, uh, you know, he, I think to his credit, he saw the future. He saw, he saw what was going to happen. I mean, even more clearly than a lot of other people uh, who were involved back then. And so he, he jumped over. Um, and then, you know, Netscape was a, was a very short, uh, ride, but it was very intense. It was a pressure cooker. And so it was very easy to see internally who was high potential and who wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we had him on a very fast promotion path basically from the day he joined. And I think had we high potential, is that, that's the phrase you use? Yeah. High potential. Like, um, you know, a young, you know, basically you're always trying in these organizations to find the young managers who you think are going to be able to scale and grow and eventually become the leaders of the company. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I, I think that I I think had, had Netscape stayed independent, we sold the company in 1998, but had, had we stayed independent, I think he would have ended up as the CEO. CEO at some point, hmm. he was just still you know very young at that point. But it was just very clear how much how smart he was and how, how good of a leader he was and how good his judgment was. Um, and so when we then so after we sold the company, we then had the opportunity to start a new company, and it, we just it was, it became clear that we wanted to work together. So let's talk about um, Jim Clark. Yeah. Um, I became I always kind of knew who Jim Clark was, but then Michael Lewis's the new new thing is what really teed up Jim Clark for me. Yeah. Um, what was that like uh, meeting Jim Clark? How did you guys uh, start to work together? Yeah, so Jim, that was, again, probably a stroke of luck in my career. Uh, Jim called me one day. Uh, out of the blue, out just of the out, blue, of out of left field. Well, so a friend of his, an associate of his who he had worked with, so he had been the founder of this company called Silicon Graphics, which mm -hmm. at the time had a reputation similar to Google's reputation today. It was considered the sort of the gold standard Silicon Valley company mm -hmm. that all the great engineers wanted to work for. It was very much, this is when, the, after the movie Terminator 2 came out, and they were redefining this whole idea of 3D special effects, and they were, they were it was just this kind of amazing moment uh, for this company. But he, he left uh, for a variety of reasons um, and decided, he wanted to start a second company. Um, and so this is a little, a little bit like Larry Page leaving Google or Mark Zuckerberg leaving Facebook right. and saying, I need to start a new company. Um, and then, um, but he had hired everybody he knew who was smart, who he had ever worked with into Silicon Graphics. And so they weren't available uh, to start a new company with him. And so he literally needed fresh people. Uh, so he got together with a group of friends and basically made a list of people who were in the industry who he had not yet worked with. Um, and he it actually it culminated in a list of about a dozen people mm -hmm. uh, who he, he approached uh, at, at various stages and said, you know, do you want to consider doing something together? Um, which culminated in a big dinner in Palo Alto with like a, the full dozen of us. And then at the, end of, at the end of the whole process, I was the only one left standing. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I, I, by the way, it wasn't because necessarily, I think he knocked some of the others out of the process, but also a lot of people, they were just like, they had jobs. They were committed. They weren't willing to yeah, yeah, take yeah, yeah. yet another leap. And, and this was a pretty, also people forget, uh, like 93, 94, we started Netscape in 94. It was a very similar uh, mood in the Valley then to what happened 10 years later after the dot-com crash. It was a very dark time in the Valley. Mm -hmm. um, the Valley had had a severe economic crash in, in 89, 90, 91, and was still kind of in the doldrums in 92, 93, 94. So the idea of a startup was considered kind of a radical thing and, a, and potentially a dangerous thing from a career standpoint. And so it, it wasn't the most obvious thing in the world for people to leap into the, into the new thing. And, so, and then so, in contrast, I had just arrived out of college. I had nothing, I had nothing to lose. I had to, you, you had no baggage. You were yeah. ready to go. So I always have this vision of, of the reason Netscape led to this explosion of uh, new technologies. At the time, Microsoft pretty much was the only game in town. And very often, uh, uh, I, I just envisioned young guys with great ideas going to venture capitalists. And at every pitch meeting, someone ends up saying, what prevents Microsoft from building this into, into their operating system? And if you didn't have an answer to that, well, thanks for coming by. See you later. And Netscape allowed everybody to say, hey, we could bypass the operating system and do this online. Yeah. Am I remotely close to the that early 90s understanding of, of 
what, who was then the dominant software player? Yeah, so strategically, I think that's right, and that, that was a big effect. But I would say there was an equal kind of effect at the same time that was at least as important, which was it, unlocking the potential of the people in the Valley. So the, the most astonishing thing to me um, was, uh, I mean, because, inter- like I said, the Internet stuff was not, we started Netscape, like, this was not considered, like, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. Most people are like, okay, this is nutty. Like, everybody knows. It was common. Thing. Everybody knows you can't make money on the Internet. There's no right. way to do it. Commercial activity on the internet was actually illegal until 1993, right? It actually was not permitted by, because it was federally research. Oh, federal so it was an, that, this is before the days of dot com. It was just yeah. dot edu. And yeah, dot edu. Dot edu. Yeah, but you could have dot com, but you couldn't do anything. You couldn't do mm-hmm. transactions. It was there was these called acceptable use limits because it was federally funded and they didn't, they hadn't legalized it yet. So um, we started Netscape <laughs> kind of right right as they switched it. So, but it was widely viewed as number one, it's illegal, um, and then number two, even if it were legal, people wouldn't want to do it because you can't trust the internet. There's hackers and thieves and all this stuff, and it's just not something and then ordinary people just won't do this and so so it, it was very counterintuitive um within a year though like with by, by 1995 when the sort of conventional wisdom people started to get exposed to it and they started to have it in their lives and they started to say oh wow i actually like this and this this starts to make more sense there was then this amazing flood of talent um, where all these incredibly sharp people in silicon valley who had worked on previous generations of technology mm-hmm. over the previous 20 years it turned out they were still here, right? And so and they were either at the older companies or they were just parked, you know, kind of on the beach. And all of a sudden <laughs> there was a new thing and they just all showed up out of nowhere. Um, and so it was like this materialization of human capital and talent basically out of thin air. And I was just astonished to see these incredibly talented people coming in, engineers, marketers, salespeople, and then all the, you know, all the other people who need to make a company go, HR people and lawyers and all these people, finance people, they just show up. And all of a sudden you've got this company that's like fully up and running with all these people with all these skills and experiences that you didn't even, I didn't even think was possible. Well, did and, they? And this is the magic of the valley. I mean, this is the people side of the magic of the valley is the human capital, will, the, the people will flow into the next opportunity much more aggressively than, than you'll find, I think, anywhere else in the world. So when I when you say they just show up, in my mind's eye, you have Stanford, you have Berkeley, you have all these great universities nearby, Caltech. Um, you have a history of, of companies going back to Fairchild Semiconductor and what have you, right. uh, plus a lot of defense and NASA-related stuff. So you would, you would envision it's almost like all the parts are, are there just waiting for something to crystallize it yeah. and send everybody yeah. off. So I, I've always yeah. looked at this as this is kind of a magic, yeah. one of the magic parts of the country. And yeah. uh, Boston is similar and D.C. is similar. And, and now Seattle has it. And to a lesser degree, Portland yeah. has that same sort of once you get a critical mass of human capital, well, all bets are off. Who knows where this goes? Yeah, that's right. Although – you seemingly have known where this was going to go before many other people. Uh, in some cases, but, but not in others. What was your – so to get back to the original question about uh, Michael Lewis's new, new thing, yeah. I assume you read the book. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? Did it ring true? Uh, do you recognize a lot of the characters in it, even people you may may not necessarily know? I would say it captured a moment in time, which was sort of the top of the dot-com bubble. Um, and then it captured a part of Jim's personality, which is the ability to kind of materialize new ideas out of thin air into existence. Mm-hmm. I don't think it captured, in fairness to Jim, I don't think it captured his depth as much as I uh, So That's hard to do. It's very hard to do. So Jim specifically, so Jim, Jim and the book tells a lot of his life story. He had a very, very interesting background, but it, it culminated ultimately in the Navy and so forth, but it ultimately culminated in he had a PhD in computer science mm-hmm. from the University of Utah, which was actually the creation origin point for a lot of the things in our industry today. Actually, Utah. There was, there was something special that happened at the University of Utah in the 60s huh. and 70s. 
Um, and uh, basically all of computer graphics and video games and all this stuff, and all the stuff that led to SGI ultimately, it was all kind of conceived, the ideas were conceived actually at, at Utah at that time. Like Pixar, it all, if you'd like trace Pixar back, it all flows back to this hmm. moment in time at the University of Utah. And so, so anyway, so he had a PhD in CS and then he went to Stanford and he was a professor at Stanford, right? And then he just, he decided his, the life of an academic was not. Right. You know, <laughs> Academics Black. don't have the largest yacht in the world and he was yes. building one of the largest sa- sailing vessels. Yeah. I think he wanted to play a little more than he wanted to teach or at least that's my take oh so this is part of the thing also that yeah he's so that that ended up becoming a big part of the book um but i would and again i would just say what was missed was when i worked with jim and other people who have worked with jim will tell you like he goes just as deep as he goes broad like he Mm -hmm. is he is very deeply in the details of technology he's not he's not the book makes it i think come across like he kind of glosses over the details and leaves those to the other to other people Mm -hmm. uh we i did not find it to be the case like he's incredibly deep on technology he's an incredibly uh, comprehensive thinker on all aspects of business like he 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 goes really, really deep. It's just that's not quite as I don't know. It's not quite as sexy for the book, I guess. Right. Um, and so all, yeah, it, it captured part of his personality, but it didn't capture the depth and the seriousness and the application and his role really as a primary inventor and, and inventor not just of ideas, but inventor of actual technologies. And then also, by the way, as a recruiter, um, he's one of the great all-time people who can gather other people around them, and he's he's really good at painting a picture. Um, and he's because he's so deep in the technology, he carries tremendous. There's a lot of people who are promotional, right? A lot of mm-hmm. people will show up and they'll say, "We're going to do X, Y, Z," and the engineers will be like, "Well, you don't like what you know? Where did you go to school? Like, what's your professional <laughs> credential to be able to have this concept? And why do you think we're just going to do all this for you?" Whereas with Jim, he's like a le- he's like a, an actual technology legend, mm-hmm. right? Who probably knows more about the topic than you do, um, and so he paints the picture, and then it, he gets buy-in from people, you know, incredible, amazing people. So, um, and so there's just a he he has a level of seriousness and and capability that I think is just way beyond what 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 Michael was able to paint that book. So the um, Netscape IPO is ninety five, ninety six, something uh, like so that. So we went public, yeah. So we went public eighteen months after founding uh, in nineteen ninety five. I, I remember that because I was a yep. junior trader. I was the little guy on the desk, and it was just a day of mayhem, right. and that really. Be started a run of technology and internet companies for the next few years. Yeah. What was that ride like? That had to be insane. Yeah, no, it was crazy, like being shot out of a rocket. Like, and, and not just me. Like the whole the whole valley had that had that had that experience. And so, it, and it really was. It was what you meant. It was the establishment of a new platform. It was the establishment mm-hmm. of this kind of new frontier. Um, it was the you know the idea that all of a sudden you, there were these thousands of new businesses that could, could get created on top. It was this idea all of a sudden that people are connected. It's actually really striking um, if you look. So, <laughs> the dot com crash right hit in two thousand, um, and then all these ideas that were viewed then as all the dot com ideas that were viewed as genius in nineteen ninety eight were viewed as just complete lunacy and idiocy in in, in two thousand. Pets right? com doesn't make any sense. Being the classic example, right? Um, so it's actually really striking. All those ideas are working today. Um, I can't think of a single idea from that era that's not working today. And the, the kicker to the Pest.com story is there's a company, Chewy, that just got mm-hmm. bought for over $3 mm-hmm. billion dollars, right, out of Florida, which is online pet food sales, like two weeks ago, right? And so even online pet food sales turns out to be a gigantic and very successful business. And so basically the, the community, the community, the tech community, the Silicon Valley community, the global community that got connected to the internet – very quickly between 1995 and call it 1998 actually came up with all the ideas like they all people are very creative and all of a sudden there's just like this. if you read you know remember you may remember there was a magazine back then called the industry standard sure which became kind of the defining kind of bible of, of the time and if in there was a period where if you read the industry standard after the crash you're just like oh these people were just all high like this is just <laughs> this is just nuts if you read it today it's like a direct forecast of what's actually happening right today. like all the stuff actually is happening it's all working so and so it, it was an amazing unleashing of talent and creativity and ideas 
interrupted by a very bad crash. Um, but it has since it, all those ideas have since really come true. What, one of the things I'm always hearing about is how well this is this is just like the dot com era. The valley is booming. This all ends badly. But right. when we, I, I this week we've been in everywhere from Berkeley to Palo Alto to Pleasanton to Mountain View. This looks to me much more like a robust economy than, hey, this is completely unhinged and it's a train wreck waiting to happen. You live through the last version of the dot-com bubble. How is this time so different in nature? Uh, the obvious thing is a lot of these companies are actually making money. Yeah. Yeah, some of them are making a lot of money. So, mm-hmm. um, in fact, now the accusation is they're making too much money, which is the, the, the criticism from the other side. So, um, that just means they're efficient and productive. It doesn't mean anything is wrong. Exactly. So, yes, from from your lips to, to God's ears. So, <laughs> so, um, so I guess I'd say as I guess I'd say the economists actually there's a theory actually in economics on this, which they they call the economists call the depression baby effect, mm-hmm. um, which is basically it's based on there's been studies, papers written about this. If you Google depression babies, it'll pop up. Um, uh, investors who were in the stock market in 1929 never went back into the stock market. Um, they stayed out of the stock market for the rest of their lives because 1929 proved definitively right that stocks are fundamentally unsafe. And, and if you look at the chart of it, literally from 1929, you don't get back to break even till 1954. It's 25 years later. It's a full generation has to be That's born, right. grow up, right. get right. jobs, and start investing in order for the market to get above right. that 29 That's peak. Right. Exactly. With no memory. You need investors with right. no memory. That's exactly right. And then, and then by the, the 25 years, exactly right. And then the other kicker is it takes another 15 years after that to get another actual bubble. Right? Mm-hmm. The next stock market bubble did not materialize until the late 60s. It's so a full 40 years. Nifty right? 50, 1966, right. the Dow hits 1,000. It's not over it for another 16 years. Yeah. Quite, quite amazing. Yeah, exactly. So, so, so anyway, the point is, if you if you live through one of these scarring crashes, mm-hmm. you, you get psychologically marked. You get you get traumatized. And and by the way, the you there is everybody, right? It's not just the investors. It's also the people who follow the market. It's also people who write mm-hmm. about the market. It's also people who work at the companies. Everybody gets traumatized. And so we had a we we have an entire we had and have an entire generation of depression babies, including me, right? Um, in Silicon Valley, who went through two thousand. Um, that's significant for a couple of reasons. One is just I, I would argue that right the narrative basically since two thousand four has been it's bubble two point I think exactly the opposite. It's been a it's been a long term bust. Right. I, I think tech stocks have been undervalued sort of consistently basically since two thousand two two thousand three, uh, and even to this day are probably undervalued relative to where they should be valued. We come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other thing that's happening is now finally enough time is passing. It's now we're coming you know seventeen years since the crash. So now finally we're getting enough kids coming to the valley who don't have a memory. Of the crash, they don't have post-crash traumatic Trauma, stress disorder. They were, like in, they were like in fourth grade, right. right? And so they just they were like busy with Legos. Like they just mm-hmm. it's not a relevant concept. And so when and you get these weird conversations, we find ourselves in these conversations where you're telling these cautionary tales, right, of what happened in 1998 or 1999, and they just look at you like grandpa, like <laughs> right. you know, tell us about the Model T. Like right. it's just an absurd kind of thing. And, and by the way, it's not that there's a good or a bad. It's just people have different life experiences. But my point is like the balance is shifting. And well, so, and so and, and you just have you have this new generation of people in the valley who are just like let's let's just go let's go build things like let's not be held back by the superstition of what happened let's go build new things mm-hmm. and then to your point like th- these things have worked when we were building Netscape in 1998 the maximum addressable market size for our company was 50 million internet, internet users of which right. most were on dial up and, and all to- were tethered to their desktop PCs which were super slow and crude compared to mm-hmm. what we have today and now as you know you have three billion people with smartphones and mobile broadband in the world on its way to six billion and so like this stuff is working. Like it, it actually came true. The, the uh, fascinating so. thing, every time when the NASDAQ regains its 
regained its 2000 peak not too long ago, people said, here we are, it's going to crash again. And, and you look, I always look at those folks and say, well, wait a second, that was an infinite PE. You now have companies actually not just making money, but making boatloads of money. And it's 15 years later. So whatever the problems were then, how do you just assume at this price level, it's the same thing? Clearly something very different is going on today. So, so sticking with that, that point, when when you hear people saying Silicon Valley is in a bubble again, look at all these unicorns, yep. here comes the train wreck, do you just kind of shrug to yourself? What's your reaction to that? So those have been the headlines for, excuse me, every year since 2004. So <laughs> 2004. So hey, they'll get it right eventually. Just keep saying the this, same this thing over and over again. 2004. 2000, 2000, so 2004. Uh, granted, 2001 to 2003 were very bad. So, mm-hmm. so, so fully granted. Uh, 2004, there were two M&A events. Uh, Yahoo bought two companies mm-hmm. for $25 million each, Flickr and Delicious. Mm-hmm. And those that launched, that created the bubble 2.0 narrative. But in other words, like if anything in tech works, and if any company in tech ever succeeds, it's therefore obviously evidence of it's a bubble. It's a bubble, of course. Right. And so that that's been the narrative the entire time. We and we've done we've we've done decks on this, we have decks on our website. Like we've done detailed analytics on every aspect of the financial numbers and the fl- the flows of money and the whole thing. And you go through mm-hmm. the whole thing. And when you when you do the analysis, I think correctly, like just just objectively correctly, it's just crystal clear how out of control everything got, really between nineteen ninety eight and two thousand and how right. relatively placid it's been it's been ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just just it's the, people don't, you know, it's the kind of thing. People just have a very strong emotional response. It's a depression baby effect. People have an emotional response. Right. The emotional response is I got tricked once. I'm not going to get tricked again. Right. And, and so it's just, it's led to this continuous, in my view, underestimation of what's happening, right? It's, just, it's led to the opposite problem, which is people are really deeply, if they were overestimate, overestimating what was happening in 98, they're underestimating it. And they're still underestimating it today. Which makes which sense. Which is why I say the stocks are, everything's probably still undervalued. Which makes sense. If you come out after that experience and you are negatively tinged with that, gee, I got burned last time because yeah. valuations didn't make sense. Fast forward 15 years, that doesn't leave these folks. So that permanently colors. And there you know, other related studies, people graduate college into a recession. <laughs> it not only affects their earnings power over the course of their lifetime, it affects their philosophical outlook. Yeah, they, right. they are actually biased and expect recessions to occur more often than they actually do. Yeah, right. It's um, our wetware is kind of deeply flawed. So you're a builder. Um, you've, you've created a couple, couple of companies, including this one in your mind's eye, are you a founder or are you a venture capitalist or a little bit of both? So I think of myself as an engineer first, mm-hmm. um, and everything else after that. And so it's kind of the core and you never know how much of this is self-delusion, of course, but um, I, I think my, my assumption is we're all self-delusional, and and you and occasionally if you glimpse a little reality, <laughs> fantastic. And they either work for you or they don't. So mm-hmm. um, no, I so I was trained as an engineer. I was always had sort of an engineering mindset, and then I was trained as an engineer, uh, trained in, at a great engineering school. And so I, I just I always view myself. I'm just trying to figure out how things work, uh-huh. and then try how to make them work better. Um, and so and I'm far more interested in figuring that out than in trying to draw value judgments on them or trying to have other you know kinds of debates around them. And so um, uh, th- that's just been you know the core the thing and so that to the extent that my companies have worked it's because they built products that people wanted um to the extent that this you know that this firm works it's because we're going we're finding those products and the people who build those products early um and betting on them and so it's it's sort of engineering as the core discipline and then and then we 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 are lucky enough in my view to live in a system in which you know that, that rewards that skill in the sense of people can build things Right, people can build things. They're encouraged to build things. They're culturally encouraged to build things, and those things might be new products, but those things also might be new companies. Back in 2011, you wrote a fascinating screed called "Software is Eating the World." It, not only did it end up becoming a meme that went fairly viral, uh, it turned out 
you were not just a little bit right. You were very right. Tell us about what motivated you to, to put that those words on, on paper. Yeah, so it was a two-part attempt. One was to explain what was actually happening. Uh, and actually, a lot of it was actually against the, the bubble narrative. The, the new bubble narrative was so strong at that point that I wanted to articulate a view of what was happening that was not just this is all a bunch of, a bunch of hot air. Um, mm -hmm. So it was partially explanatory, but also, also an attempt to forecast. Um, and specifically in, in the piece, I sort of lay out a forecast for the future um, in, in three parts, um, which uh, I think um, is the part that kind of remains, the section that remains provocative today, uh, the three parts. Maybe I recap those sure. quickly. So, so, so part one is um, every uh, product or service um, that can become software will become software. Um, and there's a long conversation we can have about that's that's the big theme of what's happening in Silicon Valley right now. I think is that we're we're we are now going after entire industries that used to be dominated by by just like retail you know retail storefronts or one eight hundred numbers or so is this appification or is this just the move to pure software? Well, appification is the consumer experience, right? Mm -hmm. Which is everything that can be experienced as an app. If you can, if you want, you know, you need you want a mortgage, it should be an app. Right? You want life insurance, it should be an app. You want to order pizza, it should be an app. Like mm -hmm. everything should just happen through that uh, through that front end. But it but it's deeper than the app because it's the complete back all, it's all the back end systems of software mm -hmm. that make make the economy ultimately work. So 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 part one, every 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 product or service that can become software will. Um, part two, therefore, um, every company that makes those products or services has to and will become a software company, right? So companies will become more and more defined by building software, just like and Silicon Valley companies are already like this. Silicon mm -hmm. Valley companies are software companies first that then get good at things like sales and marketing, mm -hmm. right? Whereas in the rest of the economy, you have a lot of companies that are good at sales and marketing that are trying to bolt on software, right? But T sitting here 10 years from now, all these companies are going to be software companies first because they're going to have to be. That's it's fascinating. In the form of the, uh, of the product. And then the third sort of most either <laughs> provocative, arrogant, you know, or delusional uh, uh, principle is therefore in any industry in the long run, uh, the winning company will be the best software company. Right. So whoever's the best. Who, who, is that really all that? You, so the well, question, the follow-up question is how much push, pushback did your original writing get? And are you still getting pushback on that, that third Part of it. Well, that third one is very third one is very provocative. So let me give an example. But it's pretty. It follows well, logically. Okay. It, it, it's if you believe in deductive reasoning, yeah. it well, makes sense. Well, let's let's pick a particularly provocative uh, example: cars. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 yeah. So car, cars. Obviously, cars. There's a lot more software in cars than there was 10, 20 years ago. Everybody knows that. It's a step further to say that in 10 years, the winning car company is going to be the car the car company that makes the best software. Right. There's no existing legacy car company in the world today that would say that that's the case. Right. They would all say that they are best at making cars and that the software is a component that goes in the cars. But the whole point of being a car company is to be great at engineering the actual physical automobile, the mm -hmm. steel and the rubber and this, all the safety systems and the, and the whole thing. Well, but if you believe self-autonomous vehicles are coming, that's software. Exactly right. Right. And so that, that would be our thesis is that, no, what's actually going to happen is the, val the value will flow to the software layer. The, the, the entire experience of being in a car will be, be defined by the software. And then in, in, at, at the limit, whichever company that makes cars or makes the intellectual property that goes into cars, whichever of those is, creates the best software will, will then be the winning company. And we'll get the majority of the value, right? And the, including ultimately the majority. So, of the so what you're really describing is the iPhone. Yeah, this is manufactured right. in China. I believe they make about five dollars per phone, right. building it together. Yeah. And then this little couple, you you may know them. They're up the street That's in right. Cupertino. Yeah. Apple is the one that captures not only all the value from the iPhone, but pretty much yeah. all of the profits from the entire, or ninety percent of the profits from the entire mobile universe. Yeah. Is, is that? The same basic concept? Yeah. Is it an iPhone model for 
everything else, including automobiles. So in general, yes. Like so that that's the, that's the implication, right? And that's a, the exact analogy, by the way, that the car company, the car industry is grappling with right now, mm-hmm. which is you, it, as you know, in phones, you used to have these companies like Nokia and RIM and others that made phones and viewed software as just this kind of add-on on top of the hardware. But the hardware. I, I'm not that old. I don't really yeah, remember, yeah, remember, those, remember companies, those companies, right? Yeah, I know. Um, and so, you know, when, when you li- like car CEOs now, they're, they're all thinking like they're working on this, the new generation of car CEOs, they're, they're working on they this get very it. hard and they're spending a lot of time out here and they spend a lot of time with us and they're, they're, they're working hard on it. But literally the way they frame that question is we, we, we ex existing car company do not want to be the, the Nokia of cars. Like, and so that, that the Nokia an- of cars, that analogy is very <laughs> front and center in, in, in their thinking. Now, at one level of detail later uh, or lower than that, um, you know, the iPhone is a particular success case of vertical integration. Mm-hmm. Um, so Apple Apple does the, you know, they don't manufacture every component in it, but they assemble the whole thing. Hardware, you know, software, software, app store. is all coupled mm-hmm. together. Sometimes the winner is vertically integrated. There are other times in other industries, and PCs were like this, the other example, which is, is horizontal structure. And so the, the other outcome is you'll have, for example, a Microsoft of cars, right, where you'll have the software layer that that actually ends up, and they actually, in that model, they instead of making the car, that winning company might just sell its software to all the car companies. But then it's like the relationship that Microsoft ended up having with all the PC companies, right, where the PC companies did all the work of actually making right. the PC, and Microsoft got all the money. Right. And so the, the, vic- the victory for the best software company could go either vertical or horizontal, and that that varies a lot. But the consi- I believe the consistent theme will be the company with the best software will ex- exactly your point. They'll end up getting most of the profits, so and, and have the strategic control, right? They'll they'll mm-hmm. be able to dictate the future of the industry by, by virtue of the fact that they control the software. So that naturally leads to the question: Is Tesla an electric car manufacturer, right. or is Tesla a software company that happens to make a pretty good looking car as well? Yeah. That's right. So th- this is the thing. If you squint with, and, and by the way, I mean Elon is deservedly a legend, and so nothing I'm about to say should be interpreted as a criticism of Elon. But just from a historic sweep of history standpoint, mm-hmm. if you squint at Tesla one way, it looks like Apple circa 2000, you know, seven 2008, mm-hmm. where they release the iPhone. They just haven't sold very money yet, but they're going to sell a ton, right? And they're going to be the vertical winner, a la Apple. Another way of looking at Tesla is, you know, their Apple in 1992 with mm-hmm. Macintosh. And yes, their integrated hardware software is good, but other people are going to come up with software as well. And then there are many other people who make cars. And so, you know, the, the, the whole thing may just, you know, they may set the model, mode for what other people end up doing mm-hmm. at, much, at much higher scale. And I think that's the big question on Tesla is like, is, is which way does that tip? Obviously, Elon's highly determined to make sure that he owns the whole stack. And to your point, he's incredibly focused on software. Like he's he is like Tesla is deeply, deeply immersed in the details. Not just by the way of the software that obviously runs the car, but the, the, like, for example, power management is a big it's sort of a secret sort of advantage. Right. Of Tesla people don't talk about that much. Is it, the, they buy the batteries from somebody else, but they write the software that manages the power, mm-hmm. which is a big part of getting the range. And, and the ludicrous mode. Yeah, and, and, the, and the ludicrous mode. Um, and then um, and then they're also, he's now deeply involved in right building, this, making sure that Tesla, he's going to try to have Tesla be the best self, self-driving car, mm-hmm. right, which is entirely a software exercise. Um, and so he, he's on it. Like, he, he's he's pushing very hard. He's And then he's, the other car companies are all in, you know, more or less reactive mode to what he's Catch doing. Catch up, so right. He the, definitely has the lead right now. But that said, the other car companies are trying to figure this out. And we now have an entire wave of new uh, automotive software companies in Silicon Valley. Right, mm-hmm. Ton, there's, I don't know. There's you know, on, on dozens on its way to hundreds of highly capable founders and engineers building new kinds of autonomous software for cars. By the way, vehicles of all different size, shape, and description: air vehicles, ground vehicles, mm-hmm. water vehicles. Right. So there's there's a revolution afoot of which Tesla is an important part, but it's also become much broader now. Quite fascinating. In um, in the early 1990s, I keep coming back to that era when venture capitalists were funding startups. 
people had to go out and buy their own servers. They had to have engineers to manage that and build that. And there was a giant infrastructure. It would take tens of millions of dollars just to open a company. Today, that stuff is, if not free, well, certainly very cheap with Amazon cloud services and a whole huge infrastructure. So if you want to launch a company today, it doesn't take $10 million just to open the doors. You could really do things on the cheap. How does that shift in infrastructure change your job as a venture capitalist when you're looking at companies? What do they really need? Do we really need to give people twenty, thirty, forty million dollars at a pop when they could start for a few thousand dollars? Right, right. So that's exactly right. That's exactly what's happened, and we, we think about that in economic terms as a very rapid deflation of, of, of input costs, right? mm-hmm. so, which is dramatic. It's like the, the inflation input the, the the input costs for a startup in economic terms have deflated by a factor of like a thousand mm-hmm. over the course that's of amazing. fifteen years, which is amazing, right? It's it's hard to actually find a historical precedent for that happening. Where, where it used to cost ten million dollars yeah. just to launch, yeah. and now you could do it for. A few grand. Yeah, yeah, we, we yeah we routinely get you know we'll get three or four kids in here. The entire ca- their entire capex, the entire company is their laptops, right? It's like, <laughs> that's it. That's all they have. It's like, four thousand dollars, and it. they're good to go. That's it. They're good to go. Everything else is like yeah, no, it's it's hundred. They have a hundred dollar bill this month on their MX for their for their <laughs> for their Amazon cloud services to launch the thing and see if it works. And so that's that's a dramatic step change. Uh, like that's that's huge. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. hard to find any 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 precedent for that, which is a big reason why a lot of so much energy has come back to the valley. So as a VC, what that results in is the the Darwinian process of running experiments to surface the good ideas and the good companies is now happening at much higher scale and at a much faster pace, hmm. right? And so as a VC, it's, this is amazing. This so is, it's it's not just the, the pace of acceleration. The second derivative is increasing also. It's it's accelerating yeah. at a faster and faster rate. Yeah, well, the, number one is just the, the sheer number of ideas that can explore it can be explored has gone way up, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, there's, there's elasticity. The less it costs to test a new idea, the more new ideas will get Sure. Tested, and the more, more people will try to test new ideas. And then, right, the second is it's just so much faster now. It's just the, the speed to get to market is just so much how do you deal with that? How do you sift through a near infinite amount of yeah, yeah. really fantastic yeah. and interesting ideas? So that's the that's the business, and so the the, the day to day business is we we see we see evaluate two thousand referred high qualified startups a year mm-hmm. every year. <laughs> so that that's the day job here is to sort and sift and filter through the two thousand. And of those of two thousand, how many do you end up doing? Now you also do something unusual. You do sort of angel funding at a very modest level, and then broader funding for for more, I guess we would say, developed or advanced companies. So, out of those two thousand that get reviewed, what does it break down to? Right now, it's about thirty a year. Thirty a year. About thirty a year out of two thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I could go through in detail, but exactly where. But it, like, that's basically the rate. So, a little bit more than one percent. By the way, I should also say these are two thousand that are referred. Right. So these these are sent to us. There's some connectivity to people we know. So I can give you an elevator pitch now. Uh, well, now that you now now that, now that you're here. <laughs> in fact, you're in you're in the room. Uh, give me so, a, give so, me a few so, minutes. I'll so, think yeah, up so, a business so, model. This is this is the this is the actual room for that. So um, so two thousand a year. Um, and 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 then the other side of it is it's not just right. The, the whole thing with this is it's not just as a good idea or good product is also who are the people, right? Because these, mm-hmm. these are people. At the end of the day, these are people businesses. And so m- honestly, most of what we're doing is evaluating people. So, more, so that was always a question that I, I find intriguing. Uh, very often these ideas come along. There's no patents on them. Uh, there's almost something in the ether where a lot of people get very similar ideas. How often do we see four or five different companies in the same space? Hey, there's Uber and Lyft and there's Pandora and go down the list. And every time you look at a concept, it looks like a lot of people have said, hey, you know what would be cool right about now? How do you figure out who has not just the best idea, but the best way to execute it when you're dealing with some really young, inexperienced technologists who 
very often have no business experience, either just out of grad school, sometimes dropping out of college. That sounds like a near impossible decision-making process. Yeah, yeah. So we, we call this the volcano movie problem. There are, <laughs> there's never just one movie about volcanoes. There's like uh -huh. two or three or four or five. Right, right. There's right. never two giant, there's never just one Deep giant, impact giant in, robot movie. There's right. never two killer, there's never just one killer meteor movies. There's gotta be two. So yeah, so that's a that's a thing. And these ideas, yeah, they, they come in waves. Um, and so that's exactly what happens. So the, the thing that we try to go, I mean, there's a lot of different lenses you apply to when you're evaluating people, but one of the ones we really dig into hard um, to try to pull kind of what we call kind of the real founders away from the people mm -hmm. who just like think they have an idea and how to try something. So the concept we call the idea maze, uh, one of our partners you know, crystallized, wrote, wrote a paper on uh, biology, Srinivasan, called the idea maze. And so the idea maze is, it, it appears on the surface, ooh, look, this is a cute idea. Like, and mm -hmm. by the way, lots of people have this idea. The real founders, the really good ones, what you find is they have thought about the problem so deeply and for so long that they have worked their way through the logic maze of how to try the idea and what they're going to try next if it doesn't work and what the implications would be if they learn something and who are the people they need to bring into the company and how do they segment the market and how do they go acquire the customers. And so all these details, it's it's the convert, it's all the topics in sort of that you don't cover in the first hour of the meeting, but you cover mm -hmm. in the subsequent five hours when you go really deep right with them. And the really good founders tend to all have in common is they've been all the way through the idea maze on their own before they've come in and talked to a VC. Mm -hmm. So there is not a, ideally in the best case, there's not a question that we can ask them in the meeting in the first six hours of discussion that they haven't already, they, not only have they already thought of the question, they've already figured out the answer for themselves, mm -hmm. right? In fact, you actually get to the point with the really good, with the really, really sharp ones get to the point where they get frustrated because they're like, why, why is this not all obvious to you people? Like, this <laughs> right. is, why are you asking me all these stupid questions? I figured this out two years ago. Like, I, I already know the, like, this and is it should a, be self-evident to everybody. It should be self-evident to everybody because they figured the whole thing out. Right. As, as contrasted, by the way, to the, the, the ones who haven't done that, if, if somebody's only put, you know, 10 or 20 hours into thinking through something and they just decided to put together a pitch, it becomes crystal clear because you get eight or 10 or 12 questions in and they stop being able to answer the questions. Now you just or, revealed, or they, or they start making, or they start making up the, you know, start making up the answers. So you just revealed this. Are you at all concerned that people would come in and say, okay, now I have all my ducks lined up and Mark isn't going to throw me off my pitch? Well, they try to trick us already. So if they haven't been through the idea maze, they try to convince us they have been, but they just start making up the answers. Mm -hmm. right? and, and you can, and you that's can, obvious. You can flesh that out. Like you, mm -hmm. you can figure that out. You can, it's part of body line and part just content. Like they just can't back up their answers. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you like, this is how, it's a little bit like how police do interrogations. So the way police, if you're ever getting interrogated by a cop and he thinks you're, what he just does is he just, the questions get more and more detailed. Right. Oh, you were, your alibi is you were out seeing a movie that night. Okay. Well, what movie, you know, well, what was the opening scene? Right. Well, what, you know, what was the plot twist at the end? You know, well, what kind of, what snack did you have? Oh, you have popcorn. Oh, did you have salt in your popcorn or not? And they just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper until you finally freak out because you can't like make up all these details. Right. So it's, it's, it's the same kind of thing. And so the reason why I, I say it so openly is it would be good for us if more founders actually went through the full idea maze. Like mm -hmm. it would be great for us if more founders came in here having thought much more deeply about what they're doing. And this is part of the pop where the popular narrative of startups is probably a little bit problematic. The popular narrative of startups is it's like the popular narrative of an invention is that these are somehow eureka moments. Right. It's this sudden flash of brilliance and you know you're just you were just you know so and by the way these companies all have these origin myths like oh i was just a kid doing this and this idea came to me and like lo and behold boom facebook right <laughs> it, 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 and that's not at all how it works right it's it's this incredibly deep and elaborate process of thinking uh, and work that actually leads to these things happening. And so I think for people to be able, if, if more founders understand the concept of the idea maze and they set the bar higher for themselves mm -hmm. and the level of thought they'll put in their ideas, then I, then I think we benefit from that. 
What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC. We talked about some of the unicorns before. Uh, we talked about this ends badly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip those questions. Let, let me, before I get to Facebook, let me, I have to ask a question. I love the show Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I know that uh, Mike Judge and Alec Berg have described you as an unofficial writing consultant to this. So tell us about your experience with the show. And I have to, uh, I, I'm a fan of Portlandia. Mm-hmm. Yep. And having been to Portland several times, I came away with the impression that, oh, this isn't a sitcom, it's right. a documentary. Right. Right. How true is that yeah. for, for Silicon Valley? That's my understanding. Portlandia is literally true, right? It, 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 it it's certainly just, feels it's, that it's, way. It's just man on the street. It's just, right. You know, put a camera in front of normal, normal. Yes, exactly. So Silicon Valley is the exact same way. So uh, I, so in all, I have to confess, I've still only seen the first season. Get out! I haven't seen the other It's seasons. so hilarious. I know. I'm sure it is. I just, the first season was so perfect. Mm-hmm. It was You're so just going to stop. I just, I couldn't, I don't know. I've just had a mental block. Um, I haven't seen the one, from the most okay. recent one this yeah. Sunday, yeah. and people are telling me it's yeah. just so hilarious yeah, yeah. and over the yeah. top. Well, these guys are the funniest, yeah, the funniest guys And, and it just rings, especially being out here, it's like, Oh, okay. I recognize him. It rings really true. Do you ever get feedback from people saying, hey, what are you doing to us? Excuse me? <laughs> like, Mark, you're kind of making us look silly. What are you doing? Uh, from who exactly? Uh, random people, random people you know, other VCs, other founders, other... other. Because uh, uh, there are very uh, few people come out of the show with uh, their uh, reputation yeah, intact. Yeah, so that's the thing. I can't, call, I can't, comment, past the, <laughs> I can't comment past the first season. I will say the first season was perfect, and I, and I will tell you, so the, the, the secret of that show, at least the secret of the first season, which I consider a, a, a work of art, um, is Mike Judge himself started his career as a chip engineer in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you if you meet him, it actually, it's, it's not what you'd expect. Like, he's one of the lead, you know, leading creative comedy geniuses of, of our era, and mm-hmm. like the creator of all these, you know, Beavis and Butthead and all these things. And Which is fascinating, because he started out so wildly overbroad, yeah. and idiocracy, and yeah, you work sure. your way down the list, yeah. and as he seems to have gotten older and maybe his artistic vision matured yeah. it went from insane to overbroad to slapstick to oh this is mildly a parody and and somewhat of cinema verite although i think he'd argue idiocracy was also a documentary um it, it was a documentary it, 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 it but five years ahead of its time, time. <laughs> right right <laughs> exactly right and so um and so he he just he has a very precise um uh he has a very precise understanding actually of how things work here um, more so than i think people would think mm-hmm. um and so and it comes across yeah and then and then his you know his partners are also geniuses and so it, it it comes across so that's good i would also say for people who haven't seen it halt and catch fire uh in a, in a completely different you know, 180 degree different mood mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a dramatic it's a drama there's no halt and catch, halt fire. And catch fire it's not funny at all uh it's <laughs> it's, a, it's a very serious show halt and catch fire is a show on amc that's i think in its third season now um it is a period piece uh unlike so silicon valley is hbo silicon valley is current time halt and catch fire is a period piece set in the early 80s at the birth of the pc um but it's the story basically it's the it's a fictionalized story of the creation of the company compaq mm-hmm. and the, then the birth of the pc industry and the birth of the pc clone industry at a time when ibm was by far the dominant company in the industry right and and so it's a but it's a very um it's a spookily accurate uh portrayal of what a startup is actually like and it's actually really funny. The the critics of the show in the first season, it was getting criticized for being too melodramatic. Uh-huh. Like, this is all too superheated and too emotional. And right. I'm thinking, nope, this is 
just it's like they put a camera in a startup. Mm-hmm. Like this, it is, was real. This is what they're actually like. I mean, everybody would like to. And this is also part of the thing we see all the time: is everybody wants to pretend that startups are fun, and it turns out startups are no fun. No, at all. it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and it is a stomach churning process um, of being told no by everybody and being told your idea is stupid. And it's just nonstop. Just you just feel like as a start, every startup founder, they just feel like they're under assault all day huh. long. And so Halt and Catch Fire does a very good job of capturing the other side of that. What What about um, the incubators like Y Combinator or Backmonity? What about those where, all right, this is a little more founder-friendly environment with a little more support and a little less um, of, of that negative cascade that you were referring to? Yeah, so the, the, they're fantastic. Look, they're they're fantastic. They've been hugely additive to the to the valley. Um, the big thing that Y Combinator and other firms like it are doing is they're bringing people in earlier. Um, and so, right, the, the the path once upon a time. I mean, I was maybe an exception to this, but the path once upon a time was you go work, you know, in a real job for five or ten or fifteen years and get mm-hmm. real experience before you try one of these things because you need to build the skill set. Um, basically, YC basically viewed as almost like the fifth year of college or something, where mm-hmm. they have the they have the ability to pull in, you know, kids in a lot of cases or people who just haven't been exposed to startups. Right. To, they basically try to spin them up much more quickly in their careers. And they talk openly about this, right? It's like it's it's a, it's sort of the new career path. Um, so it, and then it, it's also part. It's also part of this increased Darwinian kind of feeding frenzy that we're talking about. Right? So as long as we throw enough competitors, gladiators into the ring, we'll yeah. end up with that many more survivors that. Yeah. Uh, potentially can can be something one day. Yeah, and I, I suspect, I think, you know, part of the impact that these things have are the companies that come out of them, you know, out of the programs. I suspect the long run effects, positive effects will be even bigger as sort of the second, third, fourth generation, right? So it's, it's, you know, the the YC founders this year, right? The YC founders this year got, I don't know, 150 companies in the batch right now or something like that. Like, you know, some of them are going to succeed. A lot of them are going to fail. But to me, that's almost beside the point because it's all the people in those companies. It's mm-hmm. the three, 400 people who are working on those companies. And then what those people are going to do, not just this year, but five years from now and 10 years from now. And so th- these people are being set up on a career path um, where they should be able to do amazing things years from now. One of the nice things about Silicon Valley is failure isn't considered a mark of shame. It's right. so this this startup blew up and that startup didn't make it and we killed this, but we pivoted this one and yeah. you know sometimes the fifth or sixth time is the charm. Yeah, that's right. And so you get you get the, yeah if the first startup doesn't work you do you do get more swings at the bat and you do get and by the way you get different experiences like with your if your first startup doesn't work it's very often it ends in what's called an aqua hire where you end up getting sold to a big company or you just or some people just go and get a job mm-hmm. just to recover from the trauma of going through a startup that right. doesn't work. But then you get skills, right? So then you have you have your startup experience. You have now an experience maybe working at a great you know growth company where you're learning how stuff works when, it, when it's actually running at scale, right? And then five, 10 years, and you start to learn how to manage people and you, you sort of pick up these skills and then you go start another company, right? And so there, there's, there is a sort of repeated swings at the bat um, kind of effect that happens. And I, and I think that uh, the, the, these incubators just give people basically an, a, an early swing at the bat that may Maybe otherwise didn't exist. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Mark Andreessen discussing the unique structure of Andreessen Horowitz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest today is Mark Andreessen. He is the co-founder and general partner of the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. He co-created the Mosaic Internet Browser, co-founded Netscape, and has done more things uh, over the past decade or two than most of us will do in our entire lifespans. Let's talk a little bit about the firm we're sitting in, which is quite lovely. It is a very relaxing Zen vibe here um, with the blonde wood and the just generally soothing atmosphere, not what you imagine when you think up 
think of the startup community and, and Silicon Valley. Tell us how you structured the firm and, and what was the thinking behind it? Yeah, so the big thing, so we're trying to create, we're trying to work with founders to create something out of nothing, right? And so mm -hmm. with the time we invest in most companies, there's not a lot there. And then the, the path is going to be a 5, 10, 15 year path to get to, uh, you know, to get to, to, to get to something important and significant. So you're really playing a very long game. It's not two years, hey, we got to start looking for an exit. Yeah, it's, it's I was with my friends, you know, friends at CNBC, right, have the show Fast Money, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm always pitching them. It's like, you need the slow money. you need slow money, right? right? And the slow money should be on every day. And every day it should just be, right, you know, well, what's happened today that matters? And the answer is, yeah nothing um you know what's what's going on you know not much okay well, i'll see you tomorrow right and so and and, and you know these start look the startups are working incredibly hard like the startups you know there's mm -hmm. all kinds of activity at the startups but the investors say the vcs who freak out on a daily weekly monthly basis with these companies like burn themselves to a crisp like mm -hmm. because stuff it, these companies are chaos and so we go into it just knowing it's going to be with every company it's going to be this long-running journey and it just takes time it takes at least five years to build something that has real value and it takes at least 10 years to build something that's going to endure for long you know for, for, for another 10 years after that and so it's it's just going to be this 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 long thing and then I mentioned earlier like so much of this is people like we, we like to I think brag on like how good we are at thinking about the ideas and the tech mm -hmm. and the stuff and we do spend a lot of time on that stuff but I think a lot of it is partnering with really high potential people who in a lot of cases you know to your point like don't have that much experience at the time they start their companies um, or or even people with more career experience who haven't done a startup before right where there's a whole new set of things they have to learn and then we try to work and help them you know grow and become better uh, and, and and you know develop the skills that they need to build important companies um, and so the, the whole firm is kind of engineered around those ideas, right? So as an example, we will never back a startup if we think its outcome is it's going to get bought. Like every once in a while, it's really like if there's a slide in the deck that says exit strategy, you don't get bought by Google in three years, like <laughs> for 10x, like that's, right. we won't, no good. we won't fund the company. Mm -hmm. like, I could spend a lot of time on that, but like we're, we're, we're so always, in other words, you want to create a company that worst case scenario exists on its own for the foreseeable yeah. Yeah. decades in yeah. the future. And if someone happens to acquire them, great. Yeah. But that's not the target. Well, that's the, the kicker is the companies that actually get bought are the ones that don't have to get bought. The, mm -hmm. the, the ones that actually could have stood on their own because those are the ones that actually have value. Have <laughs> value, right, exactly. So that, that's the twist on the whole thing. But so we're, we're always backing uh, these companies with an, and these people with an eye towards long-run independence, uh, developing something of, of deep and enduring value. Um, so one is just the time frame. Um, that's an important part. Um, a second part is how we coach and mentor and work with the founders and the team that the founders build around them. And that has to do with our how we how we select general partners for our firm, mm -hmm. or the people who make the pull the trigger on investments and go on the boards. Um, and there is all our, our big claim to fame. There is all of our general partners are former founders and or CEOs of tech startups. And mm -hmm. so when we go on a board. It's always the case with us that you're sitting with somebody who has been through the same situation that you're in right now and mm -hmm. has had to make the difficult decision and has had to live with the consequences of that decision. Right. Right. And so it's just it's a grounding in the in the advice and the guidance that you get that I think just goes deeper than you know. And there are, by the way, there are great VCs who have no operating experience or little operating experience, and mm -hmm. some of them are actually very very good investors. But there's there's just so much in that intimate relationship with the founder and with the, with the team that I think benefits from having the credibility from having actually been in that. In that you guys, before. you guys also do something unique in that every partner is on every investment as opposed to you do software, you do semiconductor, I'll do this. Every partner participates in every investment. Is, is that an accurate statement? So we do. There is a, there is always a single GP on the board. So there mm -hmm. is somebody who's focused on you. But then the way the firm is structured is everybody shares equally in the in the results of that. So we so basically we've just, there's a lot of things we've done in the firm to design the firm to be a zero politics environment to be mm -hmm. a zero tech. 
So what you discover, what you discover. Zero politics environment. Well, zero politics environment with respect to how the entrepreneurs, I mean, I can't mm -hmm. guarantee we've ruled out all politics in the firm. I'm just saying as far as the founders experience it, they should never run into, let me back up for a second. It shouldn't be this guy in the firm likes this, but this guy is yeah. fighting against fighting it. Fighting against. So what you often find in a lot of venture capital firms is they present as United Front, and then there's a tremendous amount of infighting that's taking place. And, mm -hmm. and it's by the way, it's the same thing you see in like you'll see on Wall, on Wall Street a lot. Like mm -hmm. it's just for example, there's just a battle for the there's a battle for the profits. Like there's a battle for the carry. And so for me to get more money, somebody else has to get less money. Mm -hmm. And that leads to this weird adverse thing where I actually want the other guy's deals to fail because then I'll have more negotiating leverage in my comp you know discussion. Mm -hmm. Or there'll be a battle between who wins the deal. Deal, right, the maybe the entrepreneur starts the conversation with one GP, but maybe the entrepreneur really would rather have another GP with a more relevant skill set, right, mm -hmm. in the same firm on their board. Sure. At a lot of firms, that that starts World War III, internally. At our firm, I can imagine everybody's fine with that. Um, another thing, a little twist that we have, we don't have a promotion path in the firm to general partner. Um, so the way most other firms are structured is they have young people in the firm who get promoted up the ranks right. over time, but it's a competitive process, right? So you'll have twenty junior people who are competing for you know six sort of. Um, junior GP slots who are competing for two, GP, two senior GP slots mm -hmm. in the course of 10 or, 10 or 15 years. And so they're in a constant knife fight with each other, right? Because they're it's just like at a law firm. Or I was going to say, it sounds like the big big Wall Street or yeah. Park Avenue law firms where it's yeah. just a bloodbath. Yeah. And when they make the announcements of partners, there's a handful of happy people and a lot of other people getting their resumes together and it's no yeah. fun for anyone. Yeah. And so when that structure, that's exactly right. So when that structure works well, it leads to a very brutally Darwinian effective eat what you kill environment where mm -hmm. you're, you're breeding for, you're, you're basically breeding sharks for maximum effectiveness. <laughs> the problem is as a client of one of those firms, you get caught crosswise in the politics, sure. right? And you do not get, you basically only get access to the people who have the direct incentive to help you in the firm. You don't get access to the rest of the firm. And that's the typical experience that founders have with VCs, which is they get promised the resources of the firm. They get what they get in practice as one person. Huh. That and, seems really counterproductive. Right. It's very counterproductive. And, and, and our, by the way, a lot of our work with companies is working with our companies to help them resolve these kinds of issues with the other <laughs> VCs. So, because you you guys are also co-investors with, yeah, with other other, other venture capitalists. So we just don't. And, and again, like this may work for other firms. We just decided to take a different mentality where we don't have that kind of. You never get caught in that kind of crossfire because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big thing. And then the other big thing that we do as a firm. Um, is we do believe deeply in the idea that um, the founders, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, really should be able to, if they're if they want to, and if they're able to do it, they should they should run their own companies. And we could, we could have a long conversation about that. Um, a, the other thing that we do is we really try to help arm up the founders who don't have a lot of deep business experience with mm -hmm. all of the connectivity, the the network access that the professional CEOs all tend to have. Mm -hmm. So so the technical founder technical founder starts a company, right? And then you know a big part of it is are they just going to be good at managing and leading, which is where the GP relationship is really critical. It's mm -hmm. Coaching and mentoring. Do do you find that very often engineers and people with that sort of technical skill set? Um, the stereotype is they're socially awkward. They lack the usual skill set that a CEO typically has. Yeah. So that is often the case, but also the reverse is often the case, which is the highly social, you know, the, the CEOs had a central casting, mm -hmm. they have, you know, the inevitably great hair and the, you know, brilliant smiles and the great, you know, they look, dressed, they look great in a suit in front of a crowd. They, they often, they, not always, but they often lack the technical grounding to right. be able to determine, determine the direction of a technology company. And so, and again, like these are, these are stereotypes and they're overly broad, but they are patterns. There, so, there is some truth to it. There's the stereotypes truth to it. for a reason. Stereotype in, in this case. And so, so what we're now, everything I would say the, the, 
you know, the kicker, everything in venture is on an exception basis, right? And so by definition, we're not looking for the pattern, we're looking for the exception. And so mm -hmm. we're, we're looking for the very, to your point, the very particular technical founder, who by the way, may start out without a lot of these social skills. Mm -hmm. It may start out without really knowing how to deal with customers. It may start out not really knowing how to manage people or hire people. And then we're trying, if, and if they're willing and able to learn, we will then put a lot of effort into helping them become great at those things. By the way, it's the same as true on the other side. When it comes time, some of our companies, we do end up with professional CEOs, and then we look for the professional CEOs that not only have that skill, but also then go deep on products and technology. And so you're, and, and, and those are both exceptions. Like those are, these are not, on, on, on both sides, these are rare people. So, so it makes me wonder, is it easier to take someone who has the technical skills and teach them to be a CEO? Because it sounds like it's challenging yes. to take a CEO and say, by the way, on the side, we want you to get your, yes. uh, you know, your MS in, in computer science over at uh, Stanford at, yes. at night. That that doesn't seem like that's and invent uh, your first breakthrough product right, right at the right, same time. At the same time, I, I would think yeah. it's easier to teach the inexperienced, unskilled, but really sophisticated technolo technologist yeah. the people skills than yeah. vice versa. So in the tech industry, we firmly believe exactly what you said. The, the general pattern is we want to find the great technical founder and help them become a great CEO. And that, then exactly to your point, that's easier than finding a great CEO and trying to turn them into a great product strategist mm -hmm. and technology visionary. And I think the history of our industry confirms this. Like nine out of 10 roughly of the big successful tech companies in the last, frankly, 100 years have been run by their founders for long periods of time for this reason, mm -hmm. starting with Hewlett Packard and Intel and you know many, many, many others. You know now today Facebook and Google, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the thing. Now, because it's easier though, doesn't mean it's easy, right? And right. So you know it is a real like for these people to learn and grow. Um, you know for for an engineer who has not managed a large, large organization before to learn how to do that, like that's a big thing that they really have. They have to really want to do it. Mm -hmm. And some of them just simply don't. And then you pair them up with somebody. You you then come up with a pair configuration where they can work with somebody who who can help them with that. Um, and then some of them just simply can't, right? Mm -hmm. They just hit the wall where it's just not something that they're going to be able to do. And so that, that there, there, therein lies the, the difficulty of implementing the theory, but that, that's, that's our, that's what we do. So, so you, two things immediately come to mind when you bring that up. The first is you have Larry and Sergi who are technologists who a bit eventually, um, partner up yeah. with, uh, with their chairman, uh, Eric Schmidt, who, who basically, brings them along and teaches them how to be CEOs uh, or co-CEOs or whatever we want to call them. But the other example that leaps to mind is Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. So let, let's talk about that for a moment. You're a friend of his. You're a mentor. Tell us how that relationship came about and how have you helped Zuckerberg become one of the leading CEOs in the world? So first of all, I should, I should disclaim most credit on this, uh, which is Mark has done most of this on his own. Okay, and he has been advised and helped along the way by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. and so I'm not I'm not going to take any sort of giant uh, giant credit on this one. Um, I did though. I, I did get to I did get to see it, and I you know I was I did get to be in the room for for a fair amount of it. So. Um, so I met Mark through Peter Thiel uh, after mm -hmm. he first invested in the company, and this was when Facebook was four or five people mm -hmm. sitting in beanbags um, in Palo Alto uh, in an office with very colorful graffiti on the walls okay. uh, in the very early days. Um, and it was just crystal clear from the start. I mean, it was not, I don't think, clear that Facebook was going to become you know, a what behemoth. It's become because right. they just how, how often does that ever happen and how can, how can you actually predict that? Do you want, you want me to go through the list of how often that's happened with you, or should we save that for a later not segment? Very, not, not very, not very. <laughs> freaking often I can tell you that so um so uh so I, said, I will say like it was very clear from the beginning that Mark was a I call him a learning machine um mm -hmm. he just siphons in information and th this this goes to what I mentioned earlier it's 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 with technical founders it's both um it's both can they do it but also do they want to do it and, mm -hmm. a, and a big part of that for both of those is can they learn 
and by the way, there there are people who just simply hit the wall where they just do not want to learn anymore. Right. Like, and we've all dealt with people like that. Where sure. it's just like they're impervious to new information, right? Because they've deliberately set themselves up where it's like any new information at this point would be a threat. And so I'm just I'm done. They they tap out and yeah. they're finished. That's it. They've just they peaked. Like they've mm-hmm. just peaked in terms of everything that they're ever going to know and absorb. Like that's just the way that they've decided to live their lives. And so to do what Mark has done, you need to be the exact opposite of that. You need to just constantly be pulling in new information. From Intellectually you. curious, devouring yep. whatever comes across every path. possible topic that you can imagine that's going to be relevant mm-hmm. to what you're doing. And so Mark, Mark has just been, I, the way I think of Mark is he's, he's the most systematic person I think I've ever worked with at just pull, at, at pulling in, at just extracting the information. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was true when he was really young, right, and was not well known. Um, and he was very you know determined to go get the information from people who knew. Hmm. And then it's it's only magnified out as he's grown. And by the way, he continue, you know he's out on this tour right now, you know, touring all fifty states. Like from Mark's standpoint, there's all kinds of speculation on that. But from Mark's standpoint, the whole purpose of that is learning. Mm-hmm. Like he's not like, that he's running for president when he turns thirty five. He, 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 <laughs> he swears not. Um, but his whole when he talks about that, like when he talked about that with us, when he said he's going to go do it, it's all I'm going to go learn. I'm going to go mm-hmm. learn about the country. I'm going to go learn about every state. I'm going to learn about people who aren't like me. And and so and, and for me, so for me, it was not surprising in the sense of it's completely consistent with how he operates. And I think this is an area in which he is a much, he's a real role model on this. Like, I, I really think, like, I, I think a lot of founders, like, look at Mark and they try to drive, like, how do I get good at, I don't know, viral marketing or da-da-da, whatever product. He just wants to take it all in. I think if more people just looked at Mark and said, how do I learn like that? So I, I you, think they, they would be much better. You're on the board of directors of Facebook. What's the reaction when the CEO and founder says, hey, guys, I'm going around the country. I'm going to go to all 50 states because I think people have interesting things to say. Yeah. And I want to learn. Is there eyebrows raised, or it's like, oh, that's just Mark being Mark. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, Mark. Mark does things like that. Mark. Mark, mm-hmm. is, Mark is my point is Mark has always stretched himself. Like he stretches. He comes up with a quest every year. Goes at his quest. And a he, quest. A quest. A couple of years ago, I remember <clears throat> he was learning some obscure language, if memory serves. Yeah, I don't remember what it was. Yeah, ma- Mandarin. Mandarin, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, n- well, not so obscure, but a complex uh, language. So he does a quest every year and just yeah. basically. Keeps learning, keeps learning. Yeah, and he's been doing learning. this, if you know, I don't know, for ten years now or something. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's and so he's been through a variety of things. He, and he talks about this. He, he's very open about this. Um, and so yeah, no, he just he, he just goes out and siphons. And so he's a guy. He's a guy who's literally able to learn from some of the most you know experienced and accomplished people in the world mm-hmm. on certain topics. But you know, spend a day on a farm not far from where I grew up in Wisconsin and uh-huh. learn how to milk cows. Like, and he's just as far and as he's happy concerned. to like, do that. He's thrilled. He's absolutely thrilled. Really? Yeah, hundred percent. So he he's living the life he always wants to yeah. live. I just want to yeah. just suck everything I can yeah. possibly into my head. Yeah. As, as rapidly as I possibly can. Yep. Well, that's pretty fascinating. Um, let's keep going about the deal days you do. I want to talk about some, some more of the combination angel investing late stage. Uh, so you do deal days, and, and how many people will the firm see in a given day or week uh, when those are running? Well, we have, like I said, we do about 2,000 a year total. So then there's a mm-hmm. whole funnel, you know, there's a whole system, and there's a lot of people in the firm who meet companies and the whole process of kind of distilling the information. So it's, you know, it's dozens a week, you know, kind of across the firm. And then uh, we see pitches on usually Monday and Thursday or Monday, yeah, Monday and Thursday generally, um, and uh, as the GP team. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I don't know, Monday it was five uh, this week. On Thursday, I think there's two or three more. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and this is the, every week. So yeah, every week. there's occasional vacations and stuff, but pretty much you're running through... Yeah. 300, 400 pitches the GPs yeah. will see every and year. And these, the, these are what we call the all-GP pitches. And so these mm-hmm. are the ones where everybody's in the room. Um, and then many others, there's many others that happen during the week where one or two or three GPs might see them. Right. So at, it's at a giant time. funnel. It, it shrinks down and down yeah. until yeah. – and out of those, let's call it 300 a year, yeah. you, you're looking at 10% very, yeah. very seriously. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's about right. And, and when you decide to do an investment in them, are these usually – 
angel $50,000 rounds, or are these much more substantial rounds, or both? Yeah, so we don't really do the 50000 anymore. Mm-hmm. We, we used to do more of those when we got started, um, uh-huh. but we, we don't do those. As, we, we tend to get much more. We tend to kind of go all in or not. Right. <laughs> and so it is, and I could go through that, but like that, sure, that that's why not? how we work. Um, well, why all in? Why not? Well, we'll get two or three other investors, and we'll hedge our bets and go in partially. Well, there's two. So there's, there's a couple couple reasons. Um, one is just the level of one is just an economic thing, which is for us to be for the opportunity. So there's cost, and then there's opportunity cost, and mm-hmm. so there's always opportunity cost on our time and on our ability. To, you know, how many companies can we work with? And so, is it more the time or the money? It's more, well, it's more the time. It's more the mm-hmm. opportunity cost. It's every deal. Every deal we do fills a slot that can't be then filled right. by you know another hundred deals that you might have done instead. Right. Mm-hmm. And so there's a big there's a there's always the, any deal you do there's a big risk that you're foreclosing some other deal that would have mm-hmm. been much better and so you have to just think very hard about it and then, right it's it's it's, it's time um and then um that, that that's a big part of it um then there's also just the economics of it um which is just as a consequence of that when when you have a hit like how much of it you actually own actually really drives your returns right um and so we have a responsibility to our you know to our lps to try to you know really have the, the, the hits pay off um and then part of it is just a full engagement model like we really don't like giving up we really don't like we don't you know there there are venture firms that if you're your company's not going well, they just, they'll mysteriously vanish off the VC right. website. Like they just never get talked, they get dropped down the memory <laughs> hole. Um, and uh, we don't tend to do that. We're just, we, and it kind of comes from the fact we've all been founders and CEOs. Like we just, we don't tend to give up. Um, you and, know what it's like when you're on the receiving end of unreturned phone calls. That is right. Yeah. And so, and, and my view is like, our, we're, we make our money on the ones that work and we probably, I think, make our reputations on the ones that don't. That, right? That's a fascinating line right there because- yeah. The math behind venture investing is, look, when you go out and buy stocks in the market, 50 of them will do nothing, 30 of them will work, and uh, 10 of them will be disasters, and a handful of them will work really well. The odds are far more daunting with venture investing. It's it's almost 10x that. You have, and I think you've, you've written this elsewhere, you'll make 100 investments and 50 of them just crash. Yeah. 20, 30 do okay, but it's the one or two at the top of the pyramid that pay for the other 99. Pay for the whole thing, right, exactly. And that's actually roughly the math. So, yeah, so 50 per, in top-tier venture capital, top decile venture capital across mm-hmm. 40 years of data on this, which we have access to a couple different ways, um, basically half the deals. The good news is it's not a 10% success rate. It's a 50% success rate, right? right? So it's not as bad as some people think, but it is a 50% success rate, meaning it's a 50% failure rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, Meaning 50% failure rate, meaning zero return on that, well, that half. Of the 50%. About 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 twenty five percent, about half of the fifty percent go to zero, mm-hmm. um, and then and then the other half returns between zero and one x. Okay, uh, so they, they return recover some capital, but not all the invested capital. Mm-hmm. And then the the sort of that third quartile of sort of fifty to seventy five percent, they return you know one to three x. And mm-hmm. then it's basically the upper quartile uh, that returns sort of, you know, God willing, returns 3x plus. Right. And then if you're. And re- some of the 3x plus is a, a lot more plus than 3x. Yeah. So that's the good The good news. The bad news is, yeah, you do get the, you, you do get the ones where you lose 1x pretty frequently. The, the, the good news is, they, if, they, if they work, they can make 1,000x, right? And mm-hmm. so you. And then the LP, this is the great thing about kind of the venture ecosystem. The LPs don't care. So, for example, in the data, they don't care how you make the money, just as long as you do. So, the, in the data, for example, the top performing venture firms strike out more often, mm-hmm. called the, the Babe Ruth effect. Right. The top performing firms have more zeros, 
right? They're swinging. They're only swinging for home runs, and so and by definition, in venture, if you're only swinging for home runs, you're taking more risk on crazier, right. crazier ideas. Makes sense. And it's like it's like uh, you know, Kleiner, Kleiner Perkins famously their their Google fund. It was the fund that had Google and it had Segway, right? Right, and Segway was a legendary disaster, and you know, got all this negative publicity, and you know, they, guess what? They lost one x their money on Segway. Right. right. Guess how much money they made on Google? Right. They un, un, like, untold. Know, Ten thousand x. Right. Right. And so, so, so the good news on it is we, we, and this is something that where the U.S. in particular has a real edge uh, on this. I think is we, we have a base of limited partners, institutional investors in the U.S. that deeply understand that this is how it works. And mm-hmm. so, when we have one that goes to zero, they don't call us up and yell at us and complain. There is like, yeah, that's a cost of doing business. Right. Um, and in fact, we've had LPs ask us why we actually don't have more failures. Like, mm-hmm. are you taking enough risk? Really? What, what they want to know is, okay, of the companies that are working, how well are they working? And and basically, we call this the how high is up question. How high is how up? How high is up? How big could they get? Mm-hmm. Right. And and then if and then literally in venture, if you came back, if you were lucky enough in venture to come back every year with one big giant home run and all the rest are failures, they'd be totally happy. Like so, they, so they, they would not complain about that at all. Which and, of course is very very different than how the rest of Wall Street operates. No, no right. doubt. Right. Do do you run into every time there's that thousand X? Do you run into how many times do people say, well, this is the next Facebook? No, please stop saying that. Do you do you sort of end up in that mode where whatever was working, hey, let me explain to you why our company is the next XYZ. Do these cliches begin to make you crazy? Yeah, they do. Well, they're they're a tip. They usually the really great founders tend not to say that. Uh huh. Um, I hope people are listening to <laughs> all these suggestions. This is gonna be a how to pitch Andreessen Horowitz. Don't go there without having heard all these suggestions from this guy named Mark Andreessen. I would imagine that at a certain point, halfway through a pitch, do you look at each other and like, all right, we're done with this? Every once in a while. Uh, I will say every once in a while. Um, Mm -hmm. But but I will say this, um, the the, the privilege of the job um, is that, I mean, these are 2,000 of the smartest people in the world in the Mm -hmm. domains in which they're operating, who we get to deal with every year. And so I, the other side, we we learn so much. Even in deals, we we're not gonna we're not gonna do it. There's some where we just made a mistake and we've seen a pitch that we shouldn't have seen because mm-hmm. we're never gonna do the deal for some reason. Um, and there's you know a dozen reasons why that could be the case. Um, we generally you generally learn just a lot of contextual information about what's happening in that in that industry because um, these people have to get to that point. They've all thought these things through really deeply. Right. Back to the idea maze thing we were talking about. So that's and a, so you that's just, a, you just learn you learn in the it's and by the way what you experience is just a fire hose of it's just the smartest people in the world coming in and spending an hour telling you everything they know like it's an amazing experience. how how that was a, a question next question is how big of a strategic advantage is getting first looks at at. Two thousand of the smartest people in the world. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a big part of it, and, and I mean, that, and that's why I'm so, I've sort of become kind of semi-legendary sort of optimist. Um, mm-hmm. It's really hard, I think, to be pessimistic in this job because you do see all these incredibly fired up people with all these incredibly vivid and brilliant ideas, um, and you you just you get a sense of the productive capacity of capitalism of intel, of the intellectual pursuits. By the way, it's the, hard to be too negative when you're looking at the most optimistic inventions in in the universe. That's right. And by the way, also the output of the great research universities. Like so mm-hmm. much of what we do is building off, you mentioned earlier, so much of what we do is building off what, what happens to Stanford and MIT and Berkeley and all these other schools. Mm-hmm. All, and it's just crystal clear, like how amazing they are. So and you're. So that, it's just this that, that that's that's cut sort of the psychic payoff from the job is the ability to, to do that. 
And then it just also, I think, just becomes clear, like, there are, <laughs> contra all the, you know, the headlines are just all relentlessly negative these days. There are a lot of smart people in the world. There are a lot of people with a lot of energy in the world who want to legitimately want to build new things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, That's very exciting. And increasingly, not just here, right? Not just in Silicon Valley, not just in the U.S., not just in the West, all over the world, mm-hmm. right? And and so that, that's the other side of it is this this culture of entrepreneurship is really spreading. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to benefit from that in the sense of more opportunities, but I think the entire world's going to benefit from that. So you're focused mostly here on the West Coast, primarily Silicon Valley. You're not looking at China. You're not looking at India. Is that a, a fair uh, observation? So all of our companies want to be multinationals, and so all of our companies want to operate on the ground in all these countries, and all of our companies hire a huge number of immigrants. And mm-hmm. so our, our companies, by definition, all end up with a lot of Chinese immigrant and Indian immigrant. And then, by the way, a lot of them are actually build offices on the ground. Mm-hmm. We have a bunch of companies with offices in China building out big presences in these other countries. Um, so we, we're heavily exposed to the sort of knowledge flow and talent that way. Mm-hmm. Um, we do against that though. We do think venture capital is a craft. There is a craft to the business. Sure. Um, and it's it's a lot of it's the relationship with the board, the board members and the founders and the team. Um, and so there's a local dynamic to it. Um, it wait, sorry, uh, the number of venture firms that have successfully figured out how to operate in multiple geographies and stay world class. It's a very short list. Mm-hmm. Most of the most most generally that doesn't work. And so we we've just we've made a decision at least for the time being to try to be really good in Silicon Valley. So you. Uh, st- and, and by the way, we do fund companies outside the valley, but just on on an exception basis. Like they have to be super special. And, so and we do have some of those. So you you focus mostly local. You're you're a software absolutist. No clean tech. No rocket ships. No electric cars. Is that still true? It's it's software and software only. So software at the core. So the the rule the rule is software at the core. So there has to be. We just think there's a particular magic around software. There's a particular magic around how you can create things with software, right? It's it's it's. I, I call it alchemy. Like you type on a keyboard and then things happen in the real world. Like that mm-hmm. that's an amazing process. There's there's just kind of huge intellectual leverage there. And then, as a consequence, there's huge economic leverage, right? Which is, as I like to say, uh, uh, capital uh, software is uh, labor that creates capital. Like it, software it, is labor that. Cr- like, okay, I like, like that. It's the closest thing to magic we'll ever have. It's mm-hmm. like typing on the keyboard. It's like casting a spell, and then something happens, right? It's like you know, it's, it's li- the lift, lift guys. They type software, and then all of a sudden, real people are being taken on real rides in real right. cars, like just by magic. Like just the software just caused that to happen. And so we are looking for that kind of software leverage, the, the sort of software magic in, in, in every company. Scalable, now, magical, and the ability to convert labor into capital. Labor into capital. And then as a consequence, but as a consequence of that, our companies do end up doing all kinds of different things. And so mm-hmm. we have some companies that sell software. We have some companies that provide software as a service. We have some companies that provide apps. We have some companies that are making hardware. We have some companies that are going after new new uh, healthcare pursuits in biology, material science. Like there, there's lots of software is becoming so intertwined with the world right. that there are lots of ways to now use it to go to, to leverage it in, in different spaces. And so our, the range of companies that we're funding is broader than ever, but they all have software at the core. Software at the core. Um, I I started out this segment talking about the firm. There's a couple of things I have to ask about the firm because I'm fascinated by it. So you used to blog at P. Marka, and let me remind you that I warn you to pace yourself, young man. You're going to burn yourself out. I don't know if you remember I that. Do. I do. And, and you tweet fairly actively. I know we're on hiatus now. And you podcast. You guys have a podcast room at... This doesn't sound like it's the typical forms of communication for the old line... Uh, venture capital firm. I mean, everybody has a website, and there's sort of this interesting, hey, here are all the things we, oops, we passed on that we shouldn't have. Right. It's sort of this, um, I guess we could call it humility uh, or attempt at humility. 
your gestalt is very different here. Tell me about the thinking behind that. Yeah, so we've just we're trying to teach like we, we view ourselves kind of as been fundamentally lucky to have seen a lot of these things. Most mm -hmm. of these things we're trying to teach. We think it's by the way to our benefit to teach because if more people know how to do this, then there's more companies for us to fund and people for us to work with. Mm -hmm. um, and then part of it is just look. I think technology has gotten very important in the world, uh, much more than it used to be, and so um, and it's complex and it's hard to understand. And mm -hmm. so I think and it's hard to understand from the outside. Um, and so a big part of just what we're trying to do is to tell the story of what's happening. Not, not just in our firm, but tell the story of what's happening in the industry and what's happening with all these companies and with the implications of all these technologies. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned our podcast series. So I, I get no credit for that. Our partners here, um, uh, our partners here uh, uh, have done all the work on that. But I, it's become like, I would say, shockingly, amazingly important and influential among, among people who care about how technology is affecting sure. the world. The, the level of response we've gotten to that has been like an order of magnitude beyond what I would have ever thought was possible. Um, and and, so and that, the amazing thing yeah. is, a couple of years ago, people saying, well, podcast is all but yeah. over. I just read last week, Reed Hoffman of LinkedIn yep. is now yep. hosting a podcast. So yep. this is a technology that, A, is not going away as a form of communication. Yep. What is the benefit to the firm of being able to go out and tell a story that might not be, hey, here's why you should use Andreessen Horowitz. It's yep. never that overt. It's always... Here's some interesting things happening in the yeah. world of technology you should know about. Here's what's happening. A lot of people care about, I think a lot of people care about this stuff. A lot of people care about the implications. A lot of people, by the way, are in a position to affect the world and, mm -hmm. you know, regulators and uh, journalists and people at big companies. Um, and so we're trying to get to all the people who are decision makers, you know, you know, the constituents in the entire ecosystem that have to cope with the consequences of technological change. We're trying to get to all those folks. We're trying to pull more people into the industry, mm -hmm. right? If more people all over the world have a sense of what's happening, then they can, they can decide they might want to participate. We're trying to help people uplevel their skills, uh, become more knowledgeable about these things. And I, I, we, I mean, we obviously benefit from all that, but just more broadly, like I think this is the topic of our time. It, it's and, absolutely, and so, yeah. absolutely fascinating. Yeah. All right, so we're almost out of time. There's a ton of questions I didn't get to, including the speed round. But what I really want to do is get to the standard questions. So how many minutes can we go over? Two minutes. That's going to be tough. All right. So, so by the way. If I forget to um, say this, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, and, and going through such thoughtful, detailed answers. These, these have really been, been fascinating. I have 10 favorite questions. I'm going to just go through two or three of them really quickly. Tell us something about your background that most people don't know. I'm a big one. I grew up in the rural Midwest. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in Trump country. You did? Yes, absolutely. And has that affected your output on, on the world at all, 100%. your outlook? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Early mentors? Uh, Jim Clark, Jim Barksdale um, mm -hmm. were the two big ones. And I would say um, very complementary personalities. They work together very well, but also starkly different uh, in their skill sets and orientations. And I learned a lot from both of them. The, the question I get from listeners more than anyone, ask your guests what their favorite books are. Favorite book. So I have three quick nominations, and I'm getting getting the hook here. Uh, uh, Poor Charlie's Almanac, the companion Charlie of Munger. Charlie Munger's mm -hmm. speeches. Uh, I think is tremendous. Um, um, Extreme Ownership has been a favorite recent book by mm -hmm. a guy named Jocko Willink, who's a former Navy SEAL commander. Um, one of Extreme the, Ownership. Extreme Ownership. Um, I, one of the best books on leadership uh, I've ever I've ever read, and a tremendous, by the way, war, war story book as well. Um, and then uh, what is the... Uh, Man, there are so many. There's a brand new book. Robert Sapolsky has a new book I've just started on human behavior. It's sort mm -hmm. of his magnum opus on human behavior. He's the great evolutionary mm -hmm. uh, theorist. And so I, that would probably be the third one. That, that's the new one, but it looks very exciting. And then our final question, what is it that you know about technology and venture capital investing today that you wish you knew 
25 plus years ago when you were first starting out? Oh, there are no bad ideas. Uh, there are only early ideas. No bad ideas, just early ideas. It'll all happen. It'll all happen. I've become convinced now it'll all happen. Every smart person who comes in here with a crazy idea, it's all going to happen at some point. They all happen. Uh, it's just a question of when. We have been speaking with Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out all our other such chats. You can find them on SoundCloud, Apple iTunes, uh, and Bloomberg.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank our hosts, Mark Andreessen and the crew here at Andreessen Horowitz, as well as Mike Batnick, who is my head of research and helped put these questions together. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC.